One Week Season. edition of the Tuesday Night Inner Circle podcast. Time, the effort. It's an interesting thing. I was thinking about this the other day. We're only two-thirds of the way through the season. And that might feel like a lot, I guess, when you look at it in one way, but in another way, right? Like we still have, you've got the season into three slices, right? We still have one whole slice of the season left. And I think that the fatigue at this point starts to set in, especially for people who haven't had a big hit yet or have had several unprofitable weeks in a row. And so those people who, again, the idea of the name one week season, there's kind of two thoughts behind it. One thought is it just takes one week to make several seasons really of your DFS year. It takes one solid week and you pay for your next four or five years of play and everything else that you make over the next four or five years is profit on top of that. But the other side is also that if we are focusing, and again, we talked a few weeks ago about Brandon Ayuk losing his playing time for the 49ers, and it wasn't a thing of him not running hard in practice, and it wasn't a thing of him not playing well in games. It was a thing of his mental state not being where Shanahan wanted it to be. In other words, You hear about guys like Aaron Rodgers or Tom Brady or Debo Samuel on the 49ers who treat every practice rep with a high level of importance, who treat every practice rep like a game rep so that by the time they get out on the field, they are just repeating what they've already done. The moment's not too big for them because it's just, hey, we've done this 100 times before. Let's go out and do it again. And there's that same sort of mindset in DFS, that if you can kind of, the way I look at it is this, if you can look super big picture on things and then super, super small picture on things, you're always going to have a lot more success in sort of anything that you're chasing after. If if you're able to look five, 10, 15 years ahead on, let's say a big project or undertaking that you're focused on, and you can see five, 10, 15 years ahead, hey, this is going to be successful at this level. And you start thinking through, hey, this is what things are going to look like in the success of this thing that I'm building. Well, then that kind of takes off some of the pressure of what things look like a year from now or six months from now or three months from now, because you know what you're building toward. You know that 10, 15 years from now, what you're working on is going to look like this. But then that also forces you to say, okay, what are the daily steps? Control your controllables, right? What are the daily steps that you can do in order to make things look in 10 years, 15 years, the way you want them to look. And that kind of has you saying, okay, I'm not worried about five days from now. I'm not worried about two weeks from now. I'm not worried about three months from now. I know what things are going to look like in several years. And now I am going to buckle down on this. I built a process around what I need to buckle down on, on each individual day to make things look like that. So bringing that back over to DFS, if you can say, look, I know that I'm making profitable decisions over time. We talked last week or two weeks ago about how few slates 18 NFL slates really is if you're just playing the main slate. Again, hopefully all of you are also playing showdowns and short slates and flash drafts and battle royale and all these different things that you can do to add extra 
expected value to your pocket. But if you're just playing the main slate, 18 main slates is so small. As we talked about a couple of weeks ago, I, I had lots of stretches in MLB of three plus weeks. Bales had that stretch of over two months without cashing in tournaments. And if you look at that in terms of NFL, that's seasons of NFL play. So if you kind of get too focused on like, hey, where I'm at across the last 12 weeks or where I need to be in four weeks or something like that, it can kind of take away from what you need to be doing in order to play good DFS, which is focusing on that one day that's directly in front of you. And to know that, hey, if I treat this one week like an entire season and I focus on what needs to be done each day in this week. Now, you guys have wives and maybe not wives, you guys have a wife and kids and job and all these different things in your life, right? Like DFS is not the only thing in your life, but you need to be figuring out where DFS slots in so that you're treating it the right way. Because again, fewer and fewer people that you're competing against are still doing that at this point in the season. So your edge actually gets bigger and bigger and bigger as we get into the season. So again, Basically, just to say congratulations to to those of you who are here live and those of you who are listening after the fact, because it means that you're still putting in that time and effort to get better. And it's it's going to pay off. Maybe not in six weeks, which is what we have left. Again, if you're playing lots of slates, if you're playing showdowns and short slates and flash drafts and all these other things, you have more than six slates. But it, it might not pay off in six weeks, but you are playing in such a way like look at look at Matthew Petrich's 250k win from a few weeks ago and his whole story of like over the years it was like hey here's a big enough hit that now I can move up bankroll levels a little bit here's a big enough hit that I can move up bankroll levels a little bit more and then you get the 250k hit but that one $250,000 hit that changes your sort of financial setup right if you are no, if you know, hey, I make this much each year and my budget is set around this, all of a sudden you have an extra quarter of a million to play around with. You pay the taxes on it. This is now extra money to kind of pay off a couple things and then invest in things. And you don't need this money, right? It keeps growing. You put a little bit back into DFS, you put it into other areas. And as we often talk about, that's sort of part of what DFS can help with as well is not just making money in DFS, but it's a training ground for how to make money in basically all other areas, how to think probabilistically, how to assess risk, how to understand the range of outcomes, and continue to do things that grow your money. So let's get into tonight's segment, and we will kind of start at a point that branches off of that. And that is, it's always been bizarre to me when I see somebody order spaghetti at a restaurant And the reason is because when I was a kid, there were lots of stretches when I was a kid, my family didn't have any money. And we would get, there was like a three or four month stretch when I was, I don't know, seven, eight years old, where we had spaghetti and pasta sauce for dinner every single night for months because we didn't have the money to buy food. And so we would get food from the food pantry at the church we went to. And when people are buying food for a food pantry at a church, they buy spaghetti and spaghetti sauce because that's about the cheapest thing you can buy. So we had spaghetti for literally months. And I didn't eat spaghetti for years after that. And even now when I see somebody order spaghetti at a restaurant, I'm like, really, that's what you're going to order at this restaurant? What's interesting about that background for me, obviously, as a 
as a fiction writer, right, I pay attention to the kind of the roots underneath things and what sort of builds different mindsets and personality traits and all these different things. And so thinking through all of this, there's another side of this. I've talked about this before, but when I was a kid, we didn't have money for name brand clothes. And so whatever clothes I got were typically something that was given to us by somebody else or something that we found on sale or whatever it might be. And so I didn't have name brand shoes growing up, and especially in the 90s when Air Jordans were so big at the time, and uh, Nike was getting so big at the time. It was, it was not cool to not have cool shoes. And there, there was one time where we got a pair of Reeboks given to us that were fairly new and fit me, and another time that we, my mom found some Reeboks on sale. And so I decided, and this is, if you've ever read the book... Uh, I think it's the 48 Laws of Power, um, which I've never read the whole thing, but there's an abridged version that I skimmed through once when I was staying at an Airbnb in Amsterdam. And it had the book and it was very interesting. And but one of the laws of power in the book, and it's basically kind of like a, an examination of personality traits of powerful people. But one of the personality traits that people in power, and this is, uh, I, to be clear, this book is a horrible book. It's basically like a manifesto on how to be a, a horribly powerful person. But one of the interesting character traits is powerful people tend to, if there's something they can't have, they tend to determine in their mind that they don't want that thing. And so again, just from like a personality standpoint, that was something that I did as a kid. It was like, Nike's not cool. That was what I decided as a kid. Like Reebok is way better than Nike. I even had a stuffed animal that had little shoes, little white shoes, and I drew a Reebok logo on the shoes because to me, Reebok was so much cooler than Nike. Why? Because Reebok was what I had. And so rather than lamenting the fact that I didn't have Nike, it was like, well, Reebok's better than Nike anyway. This is this is cool. This is what I want. What that led to for me though is a tendency to always kind of take the second best thing. And I've identified those patterns in my life to such an extent that even if I go to get a plate out of the cabinet, I'll typically get the plastic plate instead of the glass plate, the ceramic plate, whatever it is. Or I'll get the plastic cup, or I'll let others have the bigger portion of something. And it's not necessarily out of a heart of of servitude so much as it's just this thing ingrained in me to take the second best thing. Let's bring this back over to DFS. So when I played MLB, I, I've talked about this again over the last couple of weeks, I had several really long losing streaks because that's kind of the nature of MLB. But as I was still learning how to process these things probabilistically, how to sort of build my mindset so that I knew that I was taking what was the most plus expected value over time, which oftentimes is taking something different than other people are taking. I had this really long losing streak in MLB one time, and I wrote an article. This was when I was with Rotor Grinders, and some of you remember when I would write those articles, I would have the intro at the beginning and then would kind of write up the plays. And I wrote this article talking about DFS Reebok. And I talked about this tendency of mine to take the second best option. 
And again, I was still kind of getting my feet under me and how to look at from the look at DFS from the big picture and say, well, if we're playing, if we look at a hundred slate sample size, a thousand slate sample size, what's going to make us the most money? And so at the time, you know, I'm in this losing streak and obviously kind of taking different plays and other people are taking. And then there was this day where I took Chris Sale and he had a huge game, but obviously everybody had him but he had a huge game and i had him on my roster and i think i cashed in tournaments that day and it made me feel just a lot better and i wrote this dfs reebok article i think it was either right before that chris sale slate or right after that chris sale slate and then either in that same losing streak or a different losing streak uh i remember i really busted out of it by taking matt scherzer on a day when he threw a no hitter and put up i don't know whatever it was like 45 or 50 DraftKings points but max scherzer was like 40 or 50% owned that day. So it wasn't that I it wasn't that I cashed or profited that day because I used Max Scherzer. It was that I couldn't have profited without him because he put up this monster score. But he wasn't the only reason that I profited that day, right? You still had to fill out the other spots on your roster in such a way that you can still beat all these people, there's more people than the cashing spots in tournaments had Scherzer that day. And the both of those times, it was like, okay, I did something good here. I took the obviously good play instead of taking what I had called the DFS Reebok. But there's also a benefit to that type of thinking. There's a benefit to not always taking the best play. I think to NFL or MLB, my MLB play, and all the Coors Field slates, So if you've played MLB DFS or if you're an MLB fan, you understand that Coors Field in Colorado and Denver ends up producing higher game totals than other ballparks because the thin air means that the the rotation of the baseball doesn't basically catch the air as much. So the break on breaking balls is not as extreme. And then when there's contact made, the ball travels farther because of the thin air. And then to account for this, Coors Field is built with a larger outfield, deeper outfield walls. But then that also means that if the ball doesn't go for a home run, there's broader gaps between the outfielders. So that's more opportunities for doubles, more opportunities for triples. So basically it's easier to make contact on the ball. It's easier for the ball to travel farther. It's easier to hit a home run. It's easier to hit doubles. It's easier to hit triples in Coors Field. So half of DF, half of MLB DFS slates have games at Coors Field. And typically, those games are so highly owned. More often than not, however, when there were games at Coors Field, and this wasn't so much a strategic mindset as it was just my tendency to question what everybody else thought was the best thing. More often than not, on Coors Field slates, I would play one or two or oftentimes zero players from that game at Coors Field. In fact, it wasn't particularly unusual. Now, DraftKings at the time had dynamic pricing, which means that the pricing changed based on matchup, and that meant that the pricing also changed based on where the game was being played. So pitchers were always cheaper at Coors Field. It wasn't super unusual for me to actually roster a pitcher pitching at Coors Field while everybody else was stacking against that pitcher. Now, looking at things now, I would call that excellent leverage. But at the time, it was just looking to poke holes in what everybody else was thinking was the best thing. Now, 
you might not have the exact same background as me. I, I gave that whole background to show kind of why my thoughts were built the way they were built and why my brain was built in a certain way. There's a lot of it that's just personality elements, but then there's also my own history as a human being, as a, as a kid growing up in the family I grew up in, that kind of layered in so that I saw things certain ways and approached things in DFS certain ways. You might have a different background than me, but you need to find what it is that points you toward ways to think differently than everybody else, ways to question what everybody else is determining is the most obvious best option. I also used to look at my DFS history. And I talked, you know, maybe a month ago about how I realized years ago, like, man, if I had had, if I hadn't played these 15 slates or 18 slates or whatever it was, I would actually be a losing DFS player. And at the time, I kind of thought of that as like, oh, well, that's like a hole in my game. I must be doing something wrong. And then you realize, no, that's what DFS is. What DFS is, is that you're going to have huge wins with droughts in between. Because the best way to play to have huge wins basically positions you to have some droughts in between. And so it's going to your your graph, so to speak, is not going to be moving up and to the right relentlessly. It's going to be moving up and to the right in a spike and then trickle down, trickle down, trickle down, trickle down, up with another spike, trickle down, trickle down, trickle down, trickle down. And that's probably what your DFS play is going to look like. So in that same vein, I used to look at my like my big wins in MLB and in NFL and recognize that most of my first place finishes and qualifiers and tournaments and whatever else were lower scores than typical first place finishes. So let's say MLB, let's say that the typical winning score was like 160. I might have that number wrong. Well, my maybe it was like 130, 135 would be like a typical winning score. And I had wins of like 112, 118. And again, I used to think, well, uh, does that just mean I'm getting lucky, right? That I'm not getting huge scores. And so I'm not putting up these, these giant scores that I'm seeing other guys put up sometimes on their wins. And then now as I've kind of been in DFS longer and, and matured and understood all of this more, you realize, no, it's that I was building differently than other people. So the slate where I'm putting up 118, but I'm just doing something totally different from everybody else, well, they're all finishing at 90, 95, 100, 110, whatever it might be. And I'm finishing ahead of all of them because I'm doing something different from everybody else. So again, not about maximizing points, but maximizing your paths to a first place finish. And one other thing that I've found with myself is that I tend, if there's a problem that's really easy to solve, it's probably going to take me longer than most people to solve it. Because my mind tends to go to the most difficult or complicated solutions to solving a problem. I can't tell you how many times Abby and I have been talking about something and I come up with this elaborate solution and then Abby's like, oh, yeah, or just this. And it's something very simple and straightforward. But as a result of that, as a result of me looking for complicated solutions first, 
I end up finding solutions to things that other people don't find solutions to. So one example of that that we see in NFL DFS and with me running OWS is sort of some of the player blocks and player pairings that I come across and pass on to you guys of, of how certain players work together, whether that's the Devontae Adams MBS thing this year, Jonathan Taylor, Carson Wentz, and Michael Pittman a couple times this year, or Tannehill and AJ Brown and Derrick Henry last year. Finding ways, or or the Josh Allen with his pass catchers in 2018, right? Finding ways to put pieces together in in ways that other people aren't seeing that's going to produce more points across more roster spots with a higher level of certainty than other people are finding. Okay, so let's go to this last week. I think it was a very interesting week. And one of the things I saw after the fact kind of across the board in a lot of Twitter conversations that I was following from afar was people talking about how they were on the right plays this last week, but were just unlucky. So if you are listening to this and didn't play week 12, or if you're listening to this maybe a couple weeks after we're recording this, week 12 was a week in which kind of all the chalk fell apart. It was after Thanksgiving week. It was only a 10-game slate. There was only one game with an over-under above 50. There was only one team with a Vegas implied team total over 26. There were a lot of pretty close spreads. And I saw a lot of people talking about how, well, you know, it was a good process. I put together this roster really well and, and things just didn't break my way. And there was a lot of frustration after this last weekend. Like, uh, even in my podcast with Scott Barrett that I just kind of finished, just kind of finished, that I just finished recording an hour or so ago, he was just expressing frustration over the slate itself and the way things played out. And there was a lot of that this last weekend. And that's fine. It's fine to come out of a weekend and say, man, I put things together really well and it just didn't work out. And if we played out this slate a hundred times, the plays that I was on would have come together. Now, what's interesting is it was all sort of the same plays for people across the board. Everyone was kind of talking about the same plays across the board that if we could play out the slate a bunch, it would have done well. But that also means that everybody was kind of looking at the same things. So let's rewind to last Friday, I guess it was, on the Angles podcast. And I very specifically went out of my way to talk about my approach for the week 12 slate. And what I said was, there is a lot of uncertainty on this slate. I talked about how typically what I do is I build what I feel is the best roster in a bubble, and then I will come out of that bubble and get a better sense of what everybody else is talking about in the industry and where ownership is going to flow. And then I see from there whether my rosters need additional work. In other words, well, I came up with these plays and this roster on my own, but it turned out this is going to be really chalky. And so let me reassess and see if I can make some changes on this roster. And what I said this last week, week 12, and what I advised you guys to do was instead of coming up with rosters first, I wanted to use ownership first. And I said that the reason why was because, as we talk about all the time, chalk forms no matter what. And this last week was very clearly a week in which we we compared it directly to the Thanksgiving slate, where I said, this is a week where the range of outcomes in basically all the games is much broader than ownership numbers are going to reflect. 
So when that's the case, it's something Xandamir talks about all the time. You want to roster a high variance play when it's low owned and fade a high variance play when it's high owned. Well, this last weekend, I kind of saw the entire weekend, the way that the slate shaped up as a whole as a quote, high variance play. In other words, if we played out that slate a hundred times, things were going to break weird ways regularly often. And so what I wanted to do was basically just say, let me not bet on what everybody else is betting on. Again, another thing that we've talked about this year is we want to think less about who we're fading and more about who we are playing. So I really liked the Bucks passing attack this last week. You guys know that. I talked about the Bucks passing attack and the reasons why it made sense. Obviously, it made sense. Obviously, it made sense because it was the most popular way to build on this last week's slate. It was something that made a lot of sense. I didn't fade the Bucks passing attack, but I also didn't play the Bucks passing attack. And what I mean by that is I wasn't saying, oh, I think that this spot's going to fail. And so let me fade it. I just said, I think that this weekend has a broader range of outcomes than the field is going to give it credit for, than ownership is going to give it credit for. So what I want to do very specifically is just build in different good spots than the field is building in. So this last week, my starting point for my rosters was Saquon Barkley and Ty Johnson. If you paid attention to this last week's slate, you know that I started out pretty poorly from those early games. I think Ty Johnson had about four DraftKings points. Saquon didn't have many more than that. Also, Pat Fryermuth and Rob Gronkowski, not in that order. Let's flip that around. Rob Gronkowski and Pat Fryermuth were pretty clearly the sharpest tight end plays on the slate. Gronk was 4,400. Fryermuth was 4,300. But again, I just wanted to do something different than the field. So we know that Kyle Pitts is double teamed every week because he's really the only weapon the Falcons have. But we also know that Kyle Pitts has a couple of monster games, a couple, whatever, 26 plus point games or 30 plus point games, games that most other tight ends on the slate are not capable of approaching. Furthermore, Gronkowski has been very touchdown reliant. Fryermuth is touchdown reliant. So it's not, it wouldn't be unexpected for both of those guys to have a good game and have 11 points, 10 points. If they don't score a touchdown, right? Like Gronk got 123 yards, but most scenarios, Gronk isn't putting up huge yardage. His value, go look at his big game so far this year, is touchdown based. And so it's not, it wouldn't be unusual for things to break in such a way that Gronk and Fryermuth both put up 10, 11, 12 points, have really solid games, have the exact same usage everybody's expecting, but don't get the touchdowns, put up 10, 11, 12 points, and Pitts, because he is the focal point of the Falcons offense right now, and they're just not being able to use him because every team double teams him, Pitts could put up 28 to 30 points against a bad Jaguars defense that just might not have the pieces in place, the communication in place to slow down Kyle Pitts. So I went with Saquon. I went with Ty Johnson. I went with Kyle Pitts. Those were three of my four early plays and they combined for, I could be slightly off on this, but I think under 15 total DraftKings points. Those were my comfortable plays. Those are the plays where I said, hey, I like the way that these pieces fit. I like the way that this game sets up. And I feel pretty good about rolling into the week with these guys. So now 
let me find the places to be different. Again, Pitts was different, but nobody's going to feel uncomfortable putting Pitts on a roster. Maybe that price tag, it's a little bit uncomfortable, but if you put Pitts on a roster, you're not sitting there until lock on Sunday morning with your hand hovering over his his face in the DraftKings app, wondering if you should remove him from the roster and replace him with somebody else. He's pretty clearly a good upside Play, his median projection is going to be a little bit lower. His floor is pretty low for his price tag, but from a ceiling standpoint, sharp play, comfortable play to, real, to roll forward with. We talk about trying to embrace some discomfort on our builds. So these were not the uncomfortable plays. These were the plays that all bombed and that I felt pretty good about. So what were my uncomfortable plays this last week? Well, we talked about Finding a game to build around that other people wouldn't be on. We talked about the fact that this week had a broad range of outcomes. So instead of betting on the game that everybody else was betting on that could go the way that they wanted, let's bet on a different game that could also go the way that this. So if everybody's on the Bucks, who had a Vegas implied team total of 28, and nobody's on the 49ers, who have a Vegas implied team total of 26. And the 49ers are playing the Vikings, who play every game close. The Vikings have a Vegas implied team total of only 23, but we know that the Vikings kind of have this broad range of outcomes, that this 49-point over-under in Vikings 49ers was kind of a hedge. And we talked about that last week, right? The Vikings can play to 17 to 14 games, or they can play to 31-34 games, 31-37 games, whatever it might be. And so basically saying, look, if this game breaks to the right side of this over-under, is in the correct side and the right side, right versus left, is in uh, where things end up on the in the standings for the DraftKings app. If this breaks to the right side and we end up with both of these teams scoring four or more touchdowns, well, this ends up being a better game to stack than this Bucks colts game with a quarter of the ownership, 20% of the ownership, 15% of the ownership. Everybody's on Michael Pittman. Everybody's on Jonathan Taylor. Everybody's on Gronk and Evans and and Godwin. Nobody's on Leonard Fournette, but everybody's on this game. And nobody's on this other game that's really pretty close if we played out the slate over and over again. So I wasn't predicting that Vikings 49ers was going to be a better game than Bucks and Colts. I was just saying, I was just predicting that if we played out the slate, 100 times, the math works to go with the lower owned between these two games, specifically if it's going to be way lower owned. So I had Cousins. My starting point was Cousins, Jefferson, and Debo. Of course, that that would be the starting point. Then I started thinking, and this is where things get really interesting in my mind. And this is kind of the, I've talked a lot this year about what set me apart in DFS when I first started. And part of what set me apart was my willingness to, and again, I was building in a bubble and was totally disconnected from what anyone else was talking about. So for me, I wasn't trying to be totally different, but it was my willingness to be just totally different and find plays that literally nobody was on and that I would bet on those plays with a high level of confidence on one roster. So whether that was, you know, Matthew Stafford and Calvin Johnson at sub 2% ownership when everyone thought Calvin Johnson was dust and that was enough to get me up in first place in the Millie Maker for three hours before finishing in, in 12th place, or whether that was Chris Ivory, one that we talked about a couple of weeks ago, or Sammy Watkins uh, when he was with the Bills and played the Dolphins. 
Dolphins had a huge game. I forget who the Dolphins cornerback was, but uh, I talked to Silva about that like three weeks later. And he was like, how did you play Sammy Watkins against this cornerback? And I was like, yeah, but you're looking at the factors that can make this guy fail. What are the factors that can make this guy succeed? And so there was a willingness on my end to just think in different terms than other people. And I lost some of that as I was writing the NFL Edge. And then especially as I launched OWS and was the only voice on OWS. And so it became very important for me to, to think in my mind, okay, you guys are paying for this site. And I, if I'm just giving you the off the wall plays, well, I'm kind of doing you a disservice because then you know a lot of subscribers are going to kind of overrate the certainty of this play. Whereas really my job kind of started shifting and be like, hey, here are the clear best plays on the slate. And as I talked about over the last couple of years, and especially this year, as we've added so many other voices on the site, I felt a lot more freedom to say, okay, let me focus on the way that I want to play and not worry as much about who the quote best on paper plays are. So Justin Jefferson's obviously the best on paper play, but then let's look at this. Let's look at this Vikings game. We're saying we're going to build around this Vikings 49ers game. We're saying we're using Debo, which means we expect him to have some big plays. We expect him to put up points. We expect the Vikings to keep the game close. Well, how do the 49ers run their defense? The 49ers are talent bereft on the back end right now. And they are using scheme to do a good job preventing passing. Now, what do teams that have limited talent that are dealing with injuries or talent deficiencies yet are well coached, what do they do in order to prevent big games from opponents to the air? They do what the Eagles have done all year. They do what the 49ers have been doing. And that is they basically say, let's take away deep passing and force teams to work underneath. We cannot match up talent-wise with most of the teams we're playing, but we can take away this deeper part of the field and just force them to work the shorter areas of the field. That's what the 49ers do. So in that regard, it's tough to say Justin Jefferson at 8,300 is going to have a monster game. He's coming off of a 40-point game, so then that boosts confidence further. It makes it likelier that people go to him, but it was his only game all season above like maybe 25, 26 points. We know that he's capable of 40-plus. He did it once or twice last year. He's done it this year. But you also have to think, well, what's realistic? What's likeliest to happen? For Justin Jefferson. More than likely, the 49ers are going to take him away. Also, Dalvin Cook didn't really fit into what I was looking for from a price-considered standpoint at running back, and we know that the Vikings really just use three guys. So I started thinking, well, if the if I don't think that Dalvin Cook's going to have a 30-point game, and if I think that the 49ers are going to focus on taking away Jefferson deep, that actually means that Thielen is the guy who would keep this game close. So I put Thielen on the roster. So now it's Cousins plus Thielen plus Debo. I can tell you that Thielen was very uncomfortable to put on that roster. I can tell you that my thumb hovered over Thielen's face for a good 20, 30 minutes being like, ah, can I leave him on here? I can tell you that when games kicked off on Sunday and the Vikings 49ers game was still kicking off in the late slot and the early games were going and all my early players were bombing, I was like, man, I can't believe that I am rolling out here with Thielen in the late game. That is so uncomfortable. But I left him in there. The other 
spot on my roster. Actually, let me go to defense. The I, I talked last week about let's go back to the early games. I talked last week about the Patriots, the Dolphins, and the Texans being my favorite defenses. Now, who are the most comfortable? defenses to play from that group, the Patriots and the Texans. Patriots were the most expensive defense, but they were very clearly a great option. Texans were the cheapest defense. And as we laid out, they were just cheaper than they should have been. The Dolphins were a defense that people weren't really talking about, and people were on Cam, people were on Christian McCaffrey, and we laid out the reasons in the player grid why the Dolphins were a sharp defense. I put the Dolphins on that roster. I thought 10 or 15 times about taking the Dolphins defense off that roster, because again, it felt uncomfortable to leave them on. Go back to the late games. I have Cousins and Thielen and Debo, and the last couple spots in the roster, I am going to be betting on the Rams and Packers game. And originally my thought was I will have Marquez Valdez-Scantling and Daryl Henderson. I want to bet on Henderson because people are on cup. People are going to be on the passing attack. But what if the touchdowns come on the ground? This is very similar to how you could have ended up on Leonard Fournette this last week, where you're not saying, oh, the matchup is this and the usage is this and all these different elements. Instead, you're just saying, hey, we, we expect this team to score points. Everybody's on the passing attack. What if the points come on the ground? So Henderson goes on this roster. It was going to be MVS, which would have forced me down to the Texans defense. But I started thinking about things critically. I had been digging into stats earlier in the week. I'd been looking at Pat Fryermuth's uh, red zone usage, inside the 10 usage. And it stood out to me several times that Randall Cobb actually came into last week ranked second in the entire NFL across the season in targets inside the 10. And I started thinking, if you're the Rams, what is your first priority? Your first priority is to try to get Jalen Ramsey on Devontae Adams as much as possible and try to slow down Devontae Adams and win 10 on 10 football elsewhere. So you could say, OK, so Marquez Valdez-Scantling gets the targets. Marquez Valdez-Scantling has the upside, which, yes, he does. But if you're the Rams, you're then going to say, well, the one thing that can beat us if we slow down Devontae Adams is huge plays to MVS. So the next order of business would be let's make sure that we don't let MVS beat us deep. What does that then do? Well, it kind of stretches the defense deep. You've got Ramsey on Devontae Adams, and it kind of opens up this shorter area of the field where Randall Cobb is likelier to work. It also increases the chances that when the Packers get down inside the 10, the guy they have to look to is not Devontae Adams, is not MVS, but is instead Randall Cobb. So I end up, instead of going with a much more comfortable MVS and Texans defense, I end up going with Randall Cobb and the Dolphins defense. So Randall Cobb and Daryl Henderson, which again, it's leverage off of the popular plays in this game. It's still betting on this game, putting up points, but just these points coming through a different place. Again, I sat there with my thumb over Randall Cobb thinking, can I really play Randall Cobb on this roster? The most uncomfortable plays on that roster were Thielen, Cobb and the Dolphins defense. And those were the plays that were the difference between me losing money and having a three X weekend. I didn't have a huge weekend, but finished in the top 8% of, of the game changer had a nice three X weekend. And that kind of sets me up for the next few weeks. And so that thinking of saying, instead of saying, here's what's likely to happen and let's bet on that. Here's what's likely to happen. And let's build a good roster around that. If we can identify places where 
where it's like, yes, this is what's likely is to happen. But generally speaking, this weekend is going to have a broader range of outcomes than people are going to give it credit for. And so let's, instead of just betting on what everybody else is betting on and focusing on those spots, let's think about what are the spots people are missing? What are the ways that these games would actually play out, even if those plays are uncomfortable to fit on a roster? And so there is some element there of that DFS Reebok thinking of saying, look, this is the second best option. But if everyone's overrating the strength of the best option, if everyone, let's put it in Nike and and Reebok terms, right? Like they're both using the same sweatshops overseas, the same exploitive labor overseas. Like they're both building similar style shoes. There's not that much difference between one shoe and the other. One is just marketed better. There's not that much difference between Bucks versus Colts and Vikings versus 49ers. Bucks versus Colts is just getting a lot more attention in the DFS industry because it's slightly better but then it's going to be five times as highly owned as this other game. So looking for those DFS Reebok opportunities, and then kind of the hardest part is that last part of thinking critically and actually saying, what and, and why, uh, let me say it like this, why did my thumb hover over Thielen and Cobb and the Dolphins defense? Because the thinking is, if I'm wrong on these, I am going to be upset with myself at the end of the day on Sunday. If I'm wrong on Mike Evans or Chris Godwin, it's much easier at the end of Sunday to say, well, variance just didn't break my way. The plays where you have to actually take a stand and say, well, I actually think that let's think about how this game would play out and where would the touchdowns have to go if the scoring is going to go where I think it's going to go. Those are the types of plays that if you're wrong on those, it's harder to just say, well, it was a good process and keep doing that. But that really is good process to be able to think that layer down and say, look, I'm going to take a stand on this because that's how you end up with these plays that do well, that people just work that they, that to other people, it seems like they came out of left field. It's like, how did this player do well? I wasn't even thinking of this guy. And if you really think down to the layers of how this team is actually going to score the way that people think they're going to score, it makes a lot more sense than people realize. So I want to encourage you to think deeply about the way your mind works and think about what is in your mind that can kind of guide you toward these sort of, again, like second tier players and finding those spots where you're like, okay, everybody's here. This is a good spot, but this spot is almost as good and is ranking right below this spot for everybody else. How can you get to those DFS Reebok types of plays and allow yourself to embrace that? Recognizing that if these two teams or these two games or these two players are close to one another, but there's a huge ownership gap between the two, the one that's slightly lesser is going to make you a lot more money over time and being willing to embrace that and being willing to say, look, if I'm wrong, I'm wrong, but everybody else is being wrong by betting too heavily on logic. I would much rather be wrong by taking the plays that can actually make me more money over time. So hopefully some of that gives you, I'll say it like this, having a roster like that, that does well enough to make money gives me confidence. And a lot of times that's necessary to have that one week that kind of goes well, where you really bet on yourself a little bit more. You really branched away from what everybody else was doing a little bit more. And then that gives you the confidence the next week to be like, well, let me do that again. 
And so I want to encourage you to kind of take that and absorb some confidence from that yourself to be able to say, okay. Uh, and also like read Larejo's articles. Um, nothing reminds me more of like my old writing, which in my opinion, my old writing was better than my writing from the last few years. And as far as like the value for DFS in terms of not, we've gotten a lot more into training stuff, which is way more valuable than anything I did four or five years ago, but in terms of like individual slates, the stuff I was doing in 2014, 2015 had more value than the stuff I I was doing in 2018, 2019. And again, I think I'm getting back to that type of stuff. But when I read Larejo's stuff, it's so sharp in terms of where can points come from that nobody's looking at. This week in the reflection scroll, Larejo went ahead and dove into all of like the big games from this last Sunday that were completely overlooked and how we could have ended up on each of them, which helps you to then build that same process into your thinking for the next week and the next week. So hopefully you can take some confidence from what I just went through and, and like use that in your own roster so that this week you're able to say, okay, well, I am comfortable betting on something that nobody else is talking about because this actually makes the most sense for this game. And maybe this game is the second best game, but it's going to go way lower owned and it's not that far behind the first best game. So take some of that for your own rosters this week. All of that is obviously extremely important. All of that is a process to kind of keep building those things in your mind. But the more you get into that, the more comfortable you get with it and the more you start to see the results from it. Uh, and then again, just one last little piece of advice, apply this to more than just the main slate. If you have the time, if you can, apply this to showdowns, apply this to flash drafts, apply this to the battle royale, look for other places where you can put this into action and maximize your ROI over time in these ways that you're giving yourself plus expected value. So with that, we will end that portion of the pod. And Aaron, if you want to hop up, I don't know if we got any questions in, but if you want to hop up, you can fire some questions my way and we will take care of that. Yeah, we don't have any questions tonight that I can see from the channel. So if anybody wants to uh, raise your hand, come up here, ask any questions. Um, other than that, Jim, I know we were you know, talking about this thing not having to be 90 minutes per se. Um, so, yeah, if you guys have questions or if not, you know, we can kind of cut it off here and everybody can kind of get into uh, – week 13 a little bit more uh, with some more time tonight. Yeah. Also a quick note to you guys. I went ahead and extended the Aaron. I didn't even mention this to you because I did this right before I hopped on, but I went ahead and extended the black Friday sale to the end of this week. So I know most of you who wanted to take advantage of that have probably taken advantage of it already. But if you are listening to this live or later, and you have not taken advantage of that. The promo code is OWS Black Friday, 50% off everything in the marketplace. Obviously, you guys are in inner circle, so you already get 30% off year round, and that's the best price that we offer outside of the Black Friday sale each year. But if you do have anything, the Amazon third-party seller course or one of the roster construction bundles or the tournament bundle with Sonic and Hilo where you already get a discount, and you can add that 50% discount onto it, um, we're going to extend that through the end of week 13. So just a heads up on that. We'll also have the promo code kind of drop throughout the NFL edge and the scroll this week. And it looks like that's it. No hands raised. Uh, Aaron, you have anything else to add before we get out of here? 
No, I, I'm good. Yeah, use up the code there. The other one is that I really enjoyed was the crypto one by uh, by Hilo. Um, really valuable information. And all of these are, you know, this off season. I went back and I read all the courses, even though I've read them in the past and the stuff that you pick up the second time around or getting prepared for next season, is just so valuable because it puts you in mid season form, you know, week one or during best ball or whatever it might be, but it allows you to really have a leg up on the competition. And I know, um, you know, I had a conversation with UJM in the off season about how some of your most successful weeks are like weeks one and two. And, you know, you kind of alluded to the fact of it just being getting prepared for, you know, a month, two months ahead of time where most people are just getting ready, you know, that week or a few days before. So it makes a huge difference and taking advantage of this now to have these for next year uh, to reread is is super valuable and a, a way to obviously save yourself some money. Yeah, I can't tell you. I mean, I do this for a living. And when I come back in August, September, I have to like reorient myself and re-remember everything. So I can imagine if, if DFS is not the central focal point of months of your life, how much more difficult it is to come back and have your feet under you week one. And that's uh, same with you, Aaron. That's one of the things that I've leaned on is just going and reading these courses. Of course, for me, uh, I kind of read through them as we're getting them posted and all that and go back to old courses through that time. But uh, but yeah, reading these courses <laughs> before the season is an extraordinary way to kind of get your feet under you and, and hit the ground running at the start of the season. So with that, we are going to get out of here. I want to thank all of you guys who are here live. I want to thank all of you who are listening after the fact. I will see you back here next week. I will see you on the site throughout the week. And I will see you at the top of the leaderboards this weekend.